0: And welcome to the inaugural edition of the Stat Pack. I'm your host, Adam Gerberwalski. You can follow me on Twitter at Tab Mathletics. That's T-A-B Mathletics. And for every week throughout this NFL season, we'll take a look at some of the highs, the lows, the news, and the notes all surrounding the quality stats here on Cold Hard Football Facts as well as some other interesting things going on with matchups in each week obviously here it's week three so we don't have weeks one and two to look at but week three certainly had its fair share of crazy moments interesting news and notes surrounding the quality stats and so much more so what should be an action-packed program here we have a lot to talk about Let's get things started off with, well, what everybody's talking about, and that is the replacement refs, obviously surrounding that highly controversial ending to the Green Bay Packers-Seattle Seahawks game, and there's really a lot of points to talk about uh, from this game, from the referee standpoint, from the player standpoint, and really from the league standpoint as a whole, as it relates to the way this league has been run over the last handful of years. Let's start things off first and foremost on the call itself. I believe the referees made the correct call in terms of not overturning their ruling. Although you look at the replay, and it definitely looks like MD Jennings had first possession before Golden Tate, which means it should have been ruled an interception... There wasn't indisputable evidence. It was probably about 90 to 95% in favor of Green Bay, but it was less than 100%, which means you cannot overturn the ruling. What was messed up was the referees never really found a way to discuss the matter before making the ruling. One referee puts his hands up for a touchdown. The other one starts to wave his hands, getting ready to call a touchback and they just rule a touchdown. Well, you can't overturn that. You put Green Bay in the pickle, and you give Seattle the advantage, and you're just simply not going to overturn that without indisputable evidence, with it especially being in Seattle on the final play of the game. Second, well, the biggest mistake made by the referees in that play was they missed that blatant offensive pass interference by Golden Tate. I think that was actually worse than the catch confusion Because it was something that was so blatant and so obvious, and it was just completely missed by the referees. Again, the ideal situation here, even if you miss the offensive pass interference, you talk it out before the decision. And this can really allow the referees to make a decision before stuff really starts to hit the fan. But I think they made too hasty of a decision, and it really shows exactly how the game is over these replacement referees had. As for the complaints by the players, a lot made on social media after the game, especially from Green Bay Packers players. All I have to say is this. You lost the game, and you have no one to blame but yourself. TJ Lang starts to make a rant, basically says that they got screwed over by the referees, and thanks to the NFL and any Seahawks fan who thought they legitimately won was more or less not manning up to something. I don't know what TJ Lang was saying, but he has no right to complain because he was the Packers' left guard on an offensive line that allowed eight sacks in the first half. Seattle had eight sacks in the first half. Meanwhile, the offensive hogs couldn't seal the game. Green Bay had the ball with 154 left to go. They couldn't get a first down. Seattle was able to prevent the four-minute drill for Green Bay, get the ball back. And oh yeah, on the final play, there's something called knocking the ball down, which MD Jennings could have done. He could have knocked the ball down, ended the game without any sort of confusion of a simultaneous possession. So Green Bay has no one to blame but themselves. You cannot lose a game where Russell Wilson throws for 130 passing yards and half, half of his passing yards come on his two touchdown passes to Golden Tate. In his other 19 passing attempts, in the game, he had just 65 passing yards. If you do the quick math, that's less than 4 yards per attempt. You cannot allow that to happen and still lose the game. The criticism should be left up to the media, who, well, their critics by trade, and, of course, the fans, the people who are paying for the products. But the players, they need to shut their mouths, They need to be like the Warriors. They claim to be on the football field. Just man up, get the job done, and stop making excuses. So for the complaints by the players, they have absolutely no say whatsoever. As for my two cents on the referees themselves as a critic of the game, I'll quickly give you my two cents on these replacement referees. My biggest complaint and the thing that really bothers me is the... Inconsistencies are something that you have in the learning nature, but missing the basics, that's thats something you should get right away. The basics, you should be able to study the game and know the rule book and know some basic math to be able to get the job done. Those should be basic qualifications for a National Football League referee, and these guys aren't getting the job done. How can you have it in week two when you call an offensive pass interference on Jacoby Jones in the Ravens-Eagles game, that you throw a blue bean bag instead of the yellow flag. And then, oh yeah, by the way, after that you mark off the wrong amount of yardage. And then you stop the game, delay the game to try and figure it out. You give the Seahawks against the Cardinals in week one an extra timeout. And then you take two or three minutes to try and figure out the confusion. Whether or not that timeout should stand and... Oh, you still make a mistake and let the timeout to stand, but you give three or four minutes for the Arizona Cardinals to allow themselves to catch their breath, figure out what the Seahawks are doing in a two-minute drill so the Cardinals stop the Seahawks. If you don't give that extra timeout to the Seahawks, it might actually help out Seattle, and maybe they're 3-0, you know, and Arizona's 2-1, and one, as opposed to the reverse roll. Also, I, I, I just slowing this game down, this is what's really bothering me. You have, between the Patriots and the Ravens on Sunday, a two-minute timeout. You go to the two-minute warning, but then you say after you come back from break, oh, it's actually two minutes and six seconds left. You're slowing the game down, and you're really taking the juice out of the game because the referees are incompetent in the sense that they're confused. They're confused at math, they're confused at the rule book, and they're confused at clock management, and those things... Should not happen whatsoever. I don't care what level of referee you are. That should not be happening. That should be a basic qualification for a referee, especially at the professional level. So that's what's really bothering me. The inconsistent calls for the pass interference and the defensive holding and the offensive pass interference, I think that just comes with the territory of trying to learn the game and just even the inconsistencies as a whole Catching plays and penalties and live-action. It's tough. You're learning. You're on the fly. You're trying to adjust to the game speed that I can understand the players policing themselves because The holdings aren't being called consistently. I can live with I don't like it But I can live with it, but I absolutely cannot stand the fact that these referees are missing the basic factors you cannot call on an offsides, a penalty that allows yardage to be assessed after the punt. The offsides is before the punt. You cannot assess the penalty after the punt. And that's what happened between the Ravens and the Patriots. They go to break, then they come back, and then they repunt because they realize they made a mistake. Well, why did it take that long? Why is it taking so long? Why is this game being slowed down so much in the juice being taken out of the game. And this ultimately comes down to my belief on the hierarchy of the National Football League and that's Roger Goodell and him really not caring about these referees making all these mistakes because of two things. First and foremost, it gives the league buzz. Good buzz, bad buzz, it's buzz. It's getting people talking about the league on social media, on ESPN everywhere else it's being talked about these replacement refs they're being made fun of on Conan O'Brien they're being made fun of by the world wrestling entertainment's primary show WWE Raw they're making fun of them there and it's making this buzz where all of a sudden more people are thinking about these referees are thinking about these games people will actually watch the game to see football fans upset because of all the chaos And what does that do? That boosts ratings. The buzz? Well, it boosts ratings. It keeps the NFL in the public sphere, and it's boosting ratings. And ultimately, I think that's what Roger Goodell cares about. He cares about, first off, ratings, and second off, power. Every single one of his decisions, in my opinion, has to do with ratings or power. What really helps out the league when you go to a break for a two-minute warning but it's really not a two-minute warning so you take two minutes to resume a game and then go to another two-minute warning what does that do well that keeps more people tuned into the game that helps the league's ratings because it's on longer and people are tuning in longer how about this as a fact the Philadelphia Eagles in their first two games each game lasted at least three hours and 40 minutes for those of you keeping math at home with to 1 p.m. start times, the Eagles went till around 445 or so. Well, that's running right into those second tier of games. Well what can they do? They can eventually push back the start times of the 4 p.m. games to 4.15, which they've already done, or maybe even down the line 430. And if those games go three and a half hours, well that lasts until 8 p.m. So then all of a sudden they can shift the coverage over to NBC to get ready for their 8.30 game, and then that can go three and a half near four hours, and all of a sudden, you have NFL programming, at least in terms of game action, from 1 to midnight with maybe at the most a half an hour of quote-unquote dead time, which is still being ratings because you have the NBC pregame, and then let's consider the NFL Network pregame from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., you have in all about 15, maybe even 16 or 17 hours of NFL programming surrounding just that one week if you want to include the two hours of postgame that will be on the NFL Network and even on ESPN. So looking at all of that together, you have 15 or 16 hours for just that Sunday in terms of coverage of NFL games. It all comes down to ratings for Roger Goodell wanting to make... The schedule, 18 games. Ratings. Goodell can talk all that he wants about how the fans want 18 games. I'll tell you as a fan, what I want is affordable preseason tickets. I'm fine with a 16-game season. I just want to be able to have an affordable preseason ticket. And if I want to be a season ticket holder, why should I have to pay for two preseason games at regular season price? Well, ultimately, it comes down to Goodell and the owners wanting money. More money. Ratings, money. You get the picture. Wanting to go to London, ratings, money. The NFL Network expansion, having more games on Thursday night, more primetime games, more ratings, more money. Again, trying to stagger those games, more ratings, more money. Even the rule changes. Think about this more reviews. Well, what does more reviews do? Slows the game down. So you can claim you're trying to get the plays right as you include now reviews on change of possession and scoring plays but it's slowing the game down it's helping the ratings the new overtime rules you can't score on the first possession and get a field goal and win the game if you score on the first possession you need a touchdown well if you get a field goal the game continues again longer games more ratings the lockouts both players and referees it's getting the buzz it's getting ratings Even when you look at the suspensions, we can shift it to the power that Roger Goodell is trying to wield here. You go and you give a suspension to Joe Mays for a nasty hit on Matt Schaub that causes him to lose a piece of his ear, but you don't suspend Medillu Williams back in week one when he had a hit where he launched at a Saints receiver. You're not making any sort of sense because you're not laying any ground rules for what and what doesn't cause a suspension for a nasty hit, or even really for contract detrimental to the league. You don't have any ground rules on this. You go by a case by case basis. What does that do? That gives more power to Roger Goodell. So, in terms of the Goodell legacy at this point right now and uh, his his reign his rule which you can kind of say because he's been ruling like an iron-fisted dictator it all comes down to power and ratings and I think that's the worst thing that's the biggest slap in the face to the NFL fans with this and this NFL referees a lockout it's not the fact that you're taking away quality from the game it's that you're doing it in the sense of ratings and power you're keeping the ratings by getting all the buzz in the league and then you're trying to remain powerful over any sort of union, whether it's the players or the referees. You're trying to keep that power. So what Roger Goodell is doing by having all these ratings, he's saying to the referees, well, we're, we're still having people tune in. We don't really need you. And it's forcing the hand of the referees to concede to Roger Goodell and really take away the power of the referees' union And I think that's kind of the worst thing is that all this is in the sake of ratings and power and the fans are the ones who are suffering the worst in all of this. So just to wrap it up on this, Roger Goodell, you're a bad man. Now let's actually get to the stat portion here of the stat pack. No more ranting and raving about the refs and Roger Goodell and all that stuff. Let's get to the fun stuff, and we'll start things off with the performance of Week 3, and performance of Week 3 was actually where the week began. The Giants demolishing the Panthers 36-7 in Charlotte, and the Giants having a huge performance as they move up 17 spots in the quality stats, power rankings, From 22nd in Week 2 to 5th in Week 3, Eli Manning put together a QBR of 108.67 compared to Cam Newton's 56.25. And this, even with Cam having a rushing touchdown, you look at what the Giants were able to do, protecting Manning. Manning looked comfortable all game. He had all day to pass to guys like Ramsey's Barden. Nine receptions, 138 yards, stepping in wonderfully with Hakeem Nix injured for the Giants. Meanwhile, Martellus Bennett was able to get open the tight end. Six catches, 73 yards, and a touchdown. Remember Marty B. not really being a factor in Dallas. He now seems to be a factor with the New York Giants. Finally, Victor Cruz, six catches of his own, 42 yards. And the Giants do this on the road in a short week. After needing a comeback at home against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, it looked like the Giants were able to build momentum from that victory against Tampa Bay and really get rolling against Carolina. As a result, they moved nine spots up in the scoreability index, 12 spots up in the bendability index. Their QBR goes up seven spots. The defensive QBR up 11 spots. The defensive passer rating and the passer rating differential each up 13 spots. And finally, they move up 14 spots in the Relativity Index. And all of a sudden, the Giants look like a 1-1 team that's struggling out the gate to, well, the defending Super Bowl champions looking very strong at 2-1. and one. And look out, Philadelphia Eagles, the Giants, if they continue that role on Sunday Night Football this week. The Eagles may be doomed for yet another loss that could really damage Michael Vick, who's just been pounded. Over the first three weeks of the season. So the New York Giants getting the performance of the week. Let's continue on with the game of the week. And it was, well, unexpected. Did you really think that you would have some of the most memorable plays in a single game between the Detroit Lions and the Tennessee Titans? Including a Titans team that was looking quite terrible through two games. But it ends up Tennessee 44, Detroit 41 in overtime in a game that came down to a fourth and one stop, and it indeed was the game of the week. Think about this. The Tennessee Titans entered week three, ranked 29th in scorability. Although they had 437 yards of total offense, you look at their five touchdowns in this game, you have one with a... Not exactly Music City Miracle 2, but a Music City Miracle-esque play in which Darius Reynaud feels a punt, throws it across the field to Tommy Campbell. Campbell returns it for a touchdown. You also have Reynaud with a kick return for a touchdown. You have Alteron Werner with a fumble return for a touchdown. So you have right there 21 points by the Titans without a single yard. But you can also add in some big plays. Jared Cook with a 61-yard touchdown reception. Nate Washington, with perhaps the most filthy touchdown reception in recent memory, 71 yards where he just abused Jacob Lacy. Lacy turning around completely 360 after Washington, catching the ball over Lacy, and while Lacy does his 360, Washington runs in for a touchdown. It was a filthy play, but five touchdowns, all of them big plays for Tennessee. Then you throw in the factor of Detroit having their crazy comeback. Werner returning that fumble for a touchdown while Matthew Stafford strains his leg. The score becomes 41-27 Titans with 1.16 left to go. Sean Hill comes in, does a fantastic job on that next ensuing drive, a touchdown Then Detroit recovers an onside kick. They have two plays left to try and get some sort of miracle touchdown. And with six seconds left to go on that second play, they indeed get a Hail Mary touchdown. Tennessee doing the right thing, trying to knock it down, but it goes right to Titus Young. He catches it. It's a tie ball game. And you include the next drive for Hill, which was a second overtime drive after Tennessee got a field goal with the new rules. Detroit gets a chance for a touchdown to win the game or a field goal to tie it. Hill, passing-wise, a 157.85 offensive passer rating. However, his QBR would go down on the final play, a 4th-and-1 confusion from Detroit. They're going for it when they're in field goal range to tie it. And Hill trying to go for the first down. Is pushed back a yard cannot get the first down. And the game over, Tennessee upsetting Detroit. 44-41, and imagine this happening with two other overtime games going on. It was excitement, it was craziness, and in the game of the week, the Titans come out ahead. But you have to wonder about Detroit. They needed a late-minute comeback against the St. Louis Rams. They needed just a crazy 14-minute comeback with 76 seconds left to go to go into overtime against Tennessee, and they lose against the Titans, a winless team, and then they lose against San Francisco. This team very easily, and probably should be, 0-3, and you have to wonder what's going on in Detroit. Matthew Stafford not playing efficiently, and now he might be injured. And then you look at the defense, just not a good job. Special teams not helping either, with the Titans getting two return touchdowns on special teams. It's just not looking good in Detroit, but at least the game was exciting. Let's continue right along with the top five player performances of week three, and we'll start things off in Washington, where Andy Dalton and the Cincinnati passing attack outdoing RG3. That's right, Robert Griffin the third and the Washington Redskins. Dalton leading a passing attack that had a 138.39 offensive passer rating. And Andy Dalton doing a great job this season for a Cincinnati defense that is struggling immensely. A defensive passer rating over 100. A team that's allowed over 100 points through three games. Dalton and Cincinnati needed every bit of that passing attack. And a 38-31 victory on the road in Washington. Cincinnati now 2-1. In an easy part of their schedule now may start to have the wheels rolling here in Dalton's sophomore season but think about this cincinnati ranked second right now in offensive pass rating in this game against washington they had just five different players with the reception four of the five had a touchdown reception four of the five had at least a 25-yard reception so the Passing attack was spread wide open. It does help when the opening play is in the Wildcat, and Mohamed Sanu gets a 73-yard touchdown pass to A.J. Green. But nonetheless, Andy Dalton, one of the top five passing performers, considering what happened on the other side, as Robert Griffin, the third, looking good again, a 103.17 quarterback rating, a passing touchdown, a rushing touchdown, over 70 yards rushing and a good passing attack once again efficiently from Griffin. So a great job by Dalton to beat out Griffin on the road. The home opener for the Washington Redskins in the 2012 season. And Cincinnati gets the big road victory. This after looking like arguably the weakest 1-1 team in the league. Number two, we'll actually look at the Tampa Bay defensive hogs. And the Buccaneers, with their defensive line, has done a great job this season, but their best performance on Sunday. Going up against the Dallas Cowboys, who through two weeks had the second-ranked offensive hogs, but DeMarco Murray shut down for the most part. Just 38 yards and a touchdown on 18 carries. Meanwhile, Michael Bennett and Gerald McCoy each with two sacks and a forced fumble for Tampa Bay. Both of those fumbles were recovered by the Buccaneers, and they gave a shot for a Tampa Bay team that had really nothing going offensively. They they mustered, really, just a combined 45.24 offensive pass rating. And overall, between the run and the pass, just barely three yards per offensive play. But the defensive hogs kept Tampa Bay in the game, although Dallas won 16-10, It was a game at home at Cowboys Stadium, a Dallas team fresh off an embarrassing loss at Seattle, and Tampa Bay's defensive line made sure that Dallas wasn't able to quickly get ahead and make this a bounce-back game. Dallas now still struggling, leading up to a key Monday night game against the Chicago Bears. Third on this list, Jamal Charles, my turbo lover, way back when, before the, the... Actually, right after his ACL injury last year, I had a nice piece on cold-hard football facts mentioning Jamal Charles and really uh, the wonderful run he had through about about a year and a half in terms of uh, uh, a seasonal span around 24 games or so where he was putting up Jim Brown-like numbers. Well, Jamal Charles through two games in 2012 didn't look all too good. Well, here in in Game 3... Against this, the New Orleans Saints, 33 carries, 233 yards, and a touchdown. Six receptions, 55 yards. But most importantly, a 91-yard touchdown run when the Chiefs were down 24-6. to And you have to wonder how a Chiefs team that is dead last in the quality stats, power rankings, can get the job done down 18 on the road in New Orleans. You look no further. Then the Turbo Lover and Jamar Charles. And Charles, again, just a fantastic job. The Chiefs win in overtime 27-24. And Charles, key in that field goal drive, converts on a fourth and one. So Charles, the key factor right there. And you have to wonder on the other side about the New Orleans Saints. They're not just 0-3, but they've lost three games to one and two teams. The Washington Redskins. The Carolina Panthers and the Kansas City Chiefs. Not exactly your who's who of opponents so far through three weeks. And if you're to look at the power rankings, overall, Kansas City has mentioned they're dead last. Washington is ranked 18th. Carolina ranked 26th. It's not exactly uh, the toughest pickings right now for the New Orleans Saints. And they're 0-3 with two home losses. But nonetheless a top performance from Jamal Charles. Fourth on this top five list, Christian Ponder, and a big performance for the Vikings at home against the San Francisco 49ers, who were fresh off of two big wins against NFC North opponents. But Minnesota, the upset special, actually predicted by yours truly, but the Vikings get the job done 24-13. Ponder in the Vikings 7 of 14 on third down. You can also include a fourth down, Touchdown reception to Kyle Rudolph on the opening drive. And Ponder this season doing a great job in this game. A 104.37 quarterback rating. Minnesota now ranked 5th through three weeks in quarterback rating in terms of real quarterback rating. As really just a great job done, as always, by Cold Hard Football Facts. This uh, unique stat, one of the best, if not the best, indicators for winners. And Minnesota ranked 5th quarterback rating. They're also ranked 4th in offensive passer rating. So Minnesota, they're really being led by Christian Ponder, surprising 2-1 at this point. Ponder with a comeback in Week 1, a comeback for a null and a loss a Week 2. But you look at some of those big conversions against the 49ers, and all three touchdown drives by Minnesota in this 24-13 victory against the 49ers, all three touchdown drives at least 80 at least eighty yards and at least 10 plays so the Vikings able to get the job done over an expanded amount of time against one of the best defenses in the league Christian Ponder deserves to be on this list and finally I don't think you really need to go any further than Torrey Smith and I'll say this I don't know how he did it less than 24 hours after losing your younger brother A man you helped to grow up. You're a father figure to your younger brother, Tevin, and he passes away in a motorcycle accident. And less than 24 hours later, Torrey Smith comes out inspired. Six catches, 127 yards, two touchdowns, as the Ravens get a huge victory against the New England Patriots 31-30. And for the first time since the season opener in 2003, the Patriots, have a sub-500 record. They're at 1-2. A big victory for the Ravens, and they needed it from Torrey Smith. Look at his two touchdown receptions. One came early in the second quarter with the Ravens down 13-0. New England looked like they might be able to run away with the game. They're being able to pass the ball all up and down the field, up 13-0 through one quarter, but Torrey Smith, that touchdown reception, got the Ravens back in the game. And then late in the game with the Ravens down thirty to twenty-one, Smith with another touchdown reception to make it thirty to twenty-eight, did a great job of one-handed catch trying to fend off a defender, two touchdown receptions by Smith, both of which were very key for them getting the victory over the New England Patriots. So Smith, wrapping up your top five player performances. Now we're on to the top five players through week three. Now, I don't want to say MVP candidates, but we'll go MOP, most outstanding player candidates at least now through three weeks. First and foremost, Matt Ryan. The Atlanta Falcons look awesome right now, and offensively, it's primarily due to Ryan. The Falcons have a 113.96 offensive passer rating through three games. That's best in the league. They also have the best real quarterback rating, so, Matt Ryan looking great. 72% of his passes have been completed so far. 8 touchdowns and 107 pass attempts. The Falcons also ranked 2nd and 3rd down offense, completing half of every 3rd down attempt. And, oh yeah, Matt Ryan also. 10 carries, 48 yards, and a rushing touchdown. So, Matt Ryan, the top candidate right now for most outstanding player. Number 2... J.J. Watt, he's been leading that Houston defense, the most outstanding player for a team that is ranked third in the Defensive Hog Index. They have, meanwhile, the top third down defense, allowing two of every nine third down attempts to be converted. So, a great job by that defense. And Watt as a 3 4 defensive end, five and a half sacks, and five passes defensed with 15 total tackles. Third on the list, while well, we're going a little bit outside the box here, with Tim Jennings of the Chicago Bears. Jennings already with four interceptions and nine passes defensed. He's the playmaker right now for a Bears defense that is third in defensive passer rating and first in defensive real quarterback rating. Tim Jennings leading the way, and he's really a perfect fit for the cover to He was a perfect fit when the Indianapolis Colts drafted him, but didn't really work out due to injury. But right now, he's healthy and playing very well with Chicago. Meanwhile, fourth, C.J. Spiller. And yes, Spiller, obviously it's a sore subject right now for some fantasy owners as he's fighting some injury concerns. But in limited action, 308 rushing yards, 9.3 rushing yards per attempt, also three touchdowns. He's added in also seven receptions for 114 yards and a touchdown. You look at that Buffalo Offensive Hog Index ranked first. He's really the, the perfect big play fit right now for that team, and he's been a boost for the Buffalo Bills. Remember, in the opening week against the New York Jets, they were down 21 nothing, being crushed. CJ Spiller made it interesting for a while. 14 carries, 169 yards, a touchdown, two receptions. 25 yards then the Bills the next week with Spiller there the entire game they win 35-17 in Kansas City rather easy victory for them He had 15 carries 123 yards two touchdowns also three receptions 47 yards and then limited time uh, This past week against the Browns and the Bills were up when he was healthy 14-0 through one quarter the game was modest after that. You could really see the difference with and without Spiller. But in one quarter of action, Spiller, four carries, 16 yards also, two receptions, 42 yards, and a touchdown. C.J. Spiller, at this point, the best playmaker in the league by far. And finally, number five, Dominique rogers Cromarty, as he's been the key factor for the Philadelphia Eagles in a much-needed top-ranked defensive passer rating, 57.03. Now, uh, you look at what the the Philly defense has been able to do. Opponents completing just 50.5% of their passes, just 5.66 yards per attempt. Rodgers-Comarty, two key interceptions in Cleveland in the opening week victory against the Browns. But I saw this on Twitter from Pro Football Focus. Uh, They claim that DRC has allowed just a 6.7 quarterback rating. Now, I'm not one to particularly get too much into game charting, but you really get the picture here. Even if there was slight variations to game charting depending on what you see in the film, it's still 6.7, which means there's a lot of room, a lot of margin for error to say that DRC's done a great job so far as one of the top two Eagles cornerbacks, so that puts him in the top five now finally let's look at the top five teams in the national football league through three weeks i'll start things off with my number one team in the top five and it's the houston texans barely edging out the atlanta falcons now the houston texans they've been dominant in pretty much all three of their games easily handling the miami dolphins Easily handling the Jacksonville Jaguars, easily handling the Denver Broncos outside of that late surge in the fourth quarter by Peyton Manning, but you look at it, Houston, I give them the edge pretty much because of their third down defense being so dominant. They've also stopped all five of their opponent's fourth down attempts, so they're really finding the ability to slam the door shut, and they've been able to get the job done, I think, a little bit more thoroughly than the Atlanta Falcons. Now, the Falcons, they are my second-ranked team, they're leading the way in passer rating differential, they're leading the way along with the Houston Texans in terms of the relativity index, and a great plus 10 turnover margin through three games, and I think that's kind of the difference right here, is that Atlanta, a a lot of their uh, dynamic in terms of getting ahead early is on the turnover. You can't expect the Falcons to replicate their production so far with plus 10 turnover margin in just 3 games there will be regression if you're to look at the pace of that uh, that's uh, averaging out somewhere near a plus 50 turnover margin which the, the highest is i believe is plus 43 by the Washington Redskins back uh, in the 1980s in one season i believe 1983 so uh, the falcons e- even uh, by their rate in terms of the best ever i don't see that happening so uh, I think Houston's dominance of the first three game is a little bit more true. So I have Houston 1, Atlanta 2. Arizona's got to be number 3. They're a legitimate 3-0 and at this point. They're right up there in the power rankings, right there in the top three. Uh, so I, I think you have to have Arizona as your third-ranked team, as your third and 3-0 team. And it's just weird to, to think the Houston Texans, the Atlanta Falcons, and the Arizona Cardinals are your 3-0 and teams. are probably uh, your three most uneventful franchises in NFL history, but they're all 3-0. and In terms of the number four team, I'm going with the Baltimore Ravens. Really, that loss to uh, the Philadelphia Eagles, uh, they were good enough to win that game, and I think that they just let that game slip out of the grass, but it was a tough road game against the Eagles. They bounced back, uh, find a way to scrape out a victory, Against the New England Patriots, uh, overall their numbers look good. A two and one team that's uh, been able uh, to play rather well, even though that poor second half from Joe Flacco. Uh, they've put up good numbers in terms of the passing offense, good numbers in terms of the defense, obviously per usual. So I have Baltimore as the number four team, and the number five team I have as the New York Giants. Their dominant victory. Against the Panthers, indeed, puts him number five uh, in the quality rankings, power or the quality stats power rankings, I should say, and I do think that their play uh, kind of, uh, in some ways, does reflect it in terms of the numbers all around. And obviously, Eli Manning, those three interceptions were a bad thing against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but he was able to shrug that off with a great second half against the Buccaneers, and I think that is going to be the exception to the rule. For the Giants this season. And even though their only divisional game was a loss to the Dallas Cowboys, and that was their only game at this point against a quality opponent, I think the Giants statistically still put together a pretty impressive total. So I'll put them as my number five in the power rankings. But that does it here for the Stat Pack, week three in the books in the NFL. And until next week, we'll have our second edition of the Stat Pack, breaking down all the big games of this upcoming week. For all you football fans out there, make sure to enjoy week four.